0: jeff smith and welcome to the secrets of success throughout my life i've been fascinated by one single question and it's how do successful people become successful what is it that makes a big difference in our lives over the last 40 years i've interviewed rich people Famous people and many millionaires to find out their secrets of success, and I want to share their secrets here with you. Of course, success is not always measured in money, and in these programs, I'm looking at many different success stories from people in all walks of life. I want to find out what makes them tick, how they overcame extreme adversity to keep on going when times got tough, and I want to extract those magical nuggets of wisdom, so that you too can implement the secrets of success into your own life. In today's episode, I'm talking with Rose Hindi. She's the woman who died. I mean, she really died. She's brought back to life, and then everything changed. Today, Rose Hindi is an executive coach and leadership expert. She started her coaching career 10 years ago and nurturing a candid style of coaching that makes her stand out from traditional coaching and mentoring. Prior to her coaching journey, Rose worked as a media consultant, data analyst and a scientist. Her speciality is the study of consumer behavioural trends, particularly in luxury products and services that's gonna be fascinating her rich background offers executive career changing coaching and leadership programs particularly in companies focusing luxury sector in addition to this rose has been identified as within the top 30 of unstoppable women entrepreneurs 2022 I also need to be careful here because Rose is a kickboxer, she's an athlete and a windsurfer. This is going to be an extremely diverse interview, questioning near-death experiences and surviving the aftermath after such an event. So let's bring in the lady herself. Welcome to the show, Rose Hindi. Thank you, and thank you
1: very much. Hey
0: Rose, you look amazing. How are you today?
1: I'm very, very good. And now I'm way much better. (laughs) After this intro, like, I mean, that's heartwarming.
0: well. Well, it is all about you and it's going to be a fascinating time here. I know you're currently enjoying the warmth of Dubai right now. I'm really envious. I wish I was there with you. And I can't wait to find out about your amazing story. But before we do that... I want to find out more about you, Rose. I want to take you back to childhood. So here are three questions. Where were you born? What was life like for you as a child? And what were your dreams and aspirations as you were growing up?
1: Oh, my God. I don't remember when was the last time somebody (laughs) asked me about this. Well, they asked me where I'm from. And I'm from Lebanon. I was born in Lebanon, in Beirut. So Beirut is... B City is my city. Uh, my childhood. Uh, well, childhood was good, but the first thing that comes to my mind when I talk about my childhood is actually war in Lebanon. So it's uh, it has stained my childhood, if I may say, multiple walls until uh, until I became much older. So, but overall, I I had the chance to have loving parents. Uh, Loving friends, uh, despite the not so ideal situation of Beirut, it was never ideal. It's not ideal.
0: So what, what's and, what's it like living through wartime?
1: Um, I've learned uncertainty of very early in my life because when you are when you live in a city that you never know what happens in terms of war, you could be at school and out of the blue, you have your dad picking you up. You, you're in a car you have the chance to be dying in this car you go home and you go to uh, somewhere underground because you have to uh, you have to hide you still study at night uh, candlelight and in the morning uh, you still go to school running on three hours sleep for for a child well that was not my entire childhood but there were intervals of that and that has impacted me uh, the tough way because anything after that is nicer right
0: <laughs> <laughs> so how
1: old they, they were you there were good times there yeah. were good times that like, so, there were summers where it was peaceful and i had to go to the beach to the mountains but when you evoked my childhood for some reasons these came to my mind and i had to share that <laughs>
0: of course of course so how old were you when the wartime settled
1: I was a teen I would say it was set, mostly settled and uh, so yeah I was a teenager and it's starting getting better and by the time I was in college it was almost totally it was the best time for uh, Beirut uh, so yeah but after that I left
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh we'll come to that in a moment so staying with you as a child then what were your dreams and aspirations at that time
1: yeah my dreams had to do with everything that has to do with science Uh, why because my dad is a chemist and uh, he always injected in me the scientific mindset and i was good in everything that pertains to science my teachers always saw me as an analyst I remember uh, my science teacher saying, I can't see you other than someone at the lab doing experiments. And that resonated actually with me because I was so meticulous. Uh, so it has. Th- this is where, what I was dreaming of, like do some kind of uh, analysis, any sort of analysis that would help people have a better life. So I ended up with consumer analysis. So
0: that's analysis as well. So let's talk about consumer analysis then. So um, you went to college, university, you came out, you're a scientist. Your consumer analysis, so we're talking about key performance indicators, which are, of course, a passion of mine. But your speciality is on consumer buying trends, particularly in luxury markets, luxury products and services. So, Rose, what secrets can you share with us about the buying habits of these people? Or I should say, the products, not the people.
1: You know, uh, let me tweak that a bit. So sure. I studied computer science, so I'm a, I'm a, I'm a programmer. Uh, so I've done that for one or two years. But when I came to Dubai, I actually embarked on the research Uh, Word So the consumer analysis insights and all this uh, probably was from many perspectives. So it was anything that pertains to consumer. It could be buying habits. It could be audience in terms of what they consume uh, throughout the day. So anything, uh, not just buying habits, but yeah, we brought the buying habits. Uh, Secret is like uh, most of buying outside the luxury world happens impulsive levels but when it comes to luxury that's that's something that slowed down because of the budget obviously for most of people who who don't sit on large amounts in the bank how do you get people to do that that's that's an art you make a luxury feels like a need rather than an extra thing So I fall into this trap.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So we have two questions for you now. What's the science behind the art of making desirable luxury products? And then how did you fall into the trap?
1: Uh, The trap, the science is like making it sexy. I mean, the sexier a handbag is, the better. It was very easy for me to fall into this trap because there were items that kind of resembled me in a way or another. So, you know, I know it sounds weird. How would a pair of shoes <laughs> <laughs> same language as you, but I mean, being a woman, it's a bit weird. So yeah, you create, you have some sort of attachment to these things and it's it becomes more than a luxury item that you're having. It becomes more, kind of a way to express yourself, if that sounds better.
0: Sure. And it's all, all the joy of ownership also, I guess.
1: Yeah, I mean, I could I could retire on my handbags, not because I afford having them, but I just have them.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a topic for another show. I dare not go there right now. <laughs> okay. We had a brief chat a few weeks ago. So we didn't know each other, we just had a chat, and you began to share your amazing story of the difficulties you had whilst you were pregnant. So at this stage, I just want to make it clear, and I'm pleased to say that your daughter Chloe is perfectly fine, but throughout this journey, things were not so easy for you, were they? What happened in this part of your life?
1: Uh, that's the part where I actually was diving to the bottom of my life. That's that's the best way to describe it. it. I kept on diving, diving, diving until really I hit the rock bottom. I thought I was hitting the rock bottom during my pregnancy, but actually it was right after my pregnancy. That's that's the magnum opus of my story, probably. But during my pregnancy, I, I, it was a loss on, on all aspects. I practically lost my husband because we agreed that we're gonna separate right after I deliver my child and that's my second child. Uh, emotional level was so horrible. But also physically, I was sick. I had five four months. Uh, I mean, the entire pregnancy, but four months where I needed help. I lived on IV for four months. Two of them were were in the hospital and two at home with a nurse. I practically had not a sip of water. I had such a rare condition where you might look okay, but you can't eat. And you, sorry about that, you throw up up to 28 times a day.
0: Wow, oh. you're vomiting 28 30 times a day?
1: It can be more practically all the time. Oh, wow. Uh, And you know, I have a certificate when my daughter pisses me off. I'm like, I'm going to go get this. I have it. It says, I, I call it a certificate. It's a piece of paper. It's, it's the discharge from the hospital. It says Rose Hendy was discharged from hospital and she was admitted on that day after having 25 episodes of vomiting. She is discharged now because she only has only has seven to eight episodes of vomiting. So that was perceived as me healing and I was discharged after that only to stay home and be sick. And I had to resign. So I lost my husband because we agreed that we're divorcing. I lost my health. Um, I'm I'm someone who's very much into sport and I was out of the blue and thrown thrown in bed helplessly. Um, And moreover, I did not intend to have a second child. That was the biggest, best mistake of my life. So that was a hazard. <laughs> a hazard with my uh, husband that I was intending to separate with. <laughs> That's a big hazard. Uh, I I lost my job. I mean, I resigned. They were so good to me and they wanted to keep me even on the payroll. But I didn't want anything. I wanted to be good. I wanted to grab a a junk burger and eat it. This is all I want. That was my that was my main goal. Uh, all the vital signs were bad. In Dubai, in UAE, there are strict, trolls, uh, strict rules when it comes to abortion. You cannot, unless you're dying. And I wasn't dying yet. <laughs> I was about to. Okay, so <laughs> so
0: let, let, let me just bring this point for, for purposes of clarity now. You and your husband decide... You're going to separate. Then you get pregnant. The pregnancy was a surprise. And you're now saying there was no opportunity to abort the pregnancy because that is not available in Dubai unless you're dying.
1: Yes. And I can't, I don't have the energy to hop on a plane and go to Lebanon and have the abortion, or I would have done it. I, I mean, I'm being very honest. Mm-hmm. I wanted to survive, and I, I couldn't think well. I couldn't think even about the baby and my and my mom. I, I wanted to live, and that was, and it, it wasn't happening. Like I'm, I'm separating. How am I keeping this baby? We decided to separate before me getting pregnant, and it got reinforced during my pregnancy. We did not change my, our mind. Mm-hmm. I kind of. Changed my mind. He didn't.
0: Okay. So then what happened? Your husband stayed with you throughout your pregnancy. He did. But during your pregnancy, you became more and more ill. You were vomiting 30 times a day. You're on a drip at the hospital twice a day. You're on a drip at home twice a day and things are just getting worse.
1: The drip was continuous, Jeff. I mean, I would die before that. So there were uh, the IVD, I was getting the main vitamins, but also medications and B-complex and paracetamol and uh, 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 the highest, the best, uh, I mean, they thought it's the best medicine for, for me to stop. Uh, being nauseous but it didn't work I was getting the same medicine that people get while they have chemotherapy because it stopped them from being nauseous it did not work for me one pill or one like something was outrageously expensive and it did not work for me as well
0: okay so we're coming now to the end of your pregnancy what now happens you're about to give birth
1: yeah I mean uh I was feeling a bit better uh, it, I, it wasn't me and also because few years back I had a thyroidectomy so I didn't have a thyroid and it was very hard to that was another story that was a very early stage of cancer but that's not our story now that's that's a separate one and uh, so I I didn't have the right dose of the hormone so that was a challenge. So everything was super hard. But still, I was I had started to feel better. Uh, I mean, I was happy that I'm having a daughter. So my perspective changed a bit. But I did not know what was awaiting after that. I, I couldn't picture how my life would be because I was I was quite senior in my job. And now I was jobless and I did not intend to work. I wanted to live. That's all I wanted. And I wanted to be healthy again, have the baby and see how it goes. I did not know how could my life be with a a son who's six years old and a newborn and I'm going to separate. I didn't know know anything where I'm going to live. But I wouldn't say I was happy, but I was happier than the beginning of the uh, the, uh, pregnancy. And we were having some sporadic, weird moment where we could probably stay together my husband and I and on the on some other occasions, it was we it was confirmed once more that we're not gonna stay. So it was so chaotic on all aspects. So yeah. And uh, I was about to deliver. Right,
0: right. <laughs> so the time comes.
1: Yeah, it came uh, way before it was June. Um, I'm not sure what happened there, but this is what happened because why am I saying I'm not sure? Because I believe that also my doctor, um, insisted on me having birth while probably I should have waited. That's one of the factors that probably could uh, have made my situation worse. So yeah, <laughs> the day has come. <laughs>
0: the day has come. What happened?
1: Uh, what happened when, (laughs) you know, there's something that I remembered the other day and I'm so sad that we lost this video. Uh, so I didn't have also a smooth delivery with my son, not, not physically, but emotionally. It was also a time where we probably were also parting ways. My husband and I, just after my son was born. And uh, immediately when I was at the hospital, I had this flashback. So there was this video. I'm really sad I lost it. Uh, My husband took it, actually. And I was telling them, oh, no, you know what? Um, I changed my mind. I'm not giving birth. I need to leave. So And I was getting out of the bed because I didn't want to. I said, don't worry, I can come back tomorrow or any other day. But it's not happening today. So I was kind of hallucinating. And I was so scared. I did not know what was happening medically and physically, but I was scared because it's going to be traumatic. After that, I knew. I mean, I knew I was going to divorce after that. And that was so scary, so, so scary. So I was in such a horrible situation. I remember for some reason, my right eye was not opening and it got swollen. I was so emotional and uh, yeah, I was so bad. I remember those moments. Oh my God, now I'm remembering them.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So we come to the time, the delivery of your daughter. So you're in hospital now. What happens now?
1: I mean, uh, it was going so well, uh, more or less. A bit of delay here and there. I got uh, it. It was an induction, so uh, I had extra of these chemicals to induce the delivery. Uh, so that that was it. That was a hiccup. The epidural wasn't working. It was working on partial, only partially. So it was painful, and uh, yeah, just like the olden days. And yeah, it was it was very emotional because I wasn't thinking about me giving birth but rather what's gonna happen next so I wasn't even in the moment you know so I wanted this baby to be out and the baby was out the baby was healthy I and mean, everybody leaves the room because they thought that the baby's here, the baby is good, the baby is even breastfeeding until I felt that something is going on in the, in the delivery room and uh, there was lots of blood. Okay, this is not meant for the uh, faint-hearted. <laughs> what, what we say that this is not meant for people who are scared from uh, from all these toys and blood. But there was like a lot. There's a wall behind where the doctor was uh, standing, and it was there were splashes of blood. And then I would realize that, and I asked, "What's what's going on?" And my doctor told me. Uh, we need to do a surgery for you. It's like I just gave birth. What kind of surgery? She said yeah, but we're gonna take you to the uh, to the theater, and we're gonna ha- you're gonna have a new cut, and we're gonna remove your uterus. I said, you're gonna remove my uterus? What happened? She said, it's not going back to its size. Uh, it's fully dilated, and uh, just we need to get it out of your body. And that's like, what? She said. That's the only way for you to be well. It's like, fine, they were holding me from one bed to the other, and I was going to get operated. And then we went to the ward, and that was so scary. It was cold, that's what I remember. And the, the worst moment is that they had to take Chloe, and she was breastfeeding, and I wanted her. And I remember they were pushing the bed, and a nurse was holding Chloe, her head was here, and it was on me and she was holding her body because i insisted on her breastfeeding because maybe maybe i die and she never sees her mom again so i insisted on that i know it's weird and my doctor was like i don't care about the baby she's good you are not good so we went there and then when they checked my my vital signs my blood pressure went too low, and they knew that they can't operate me anymore. There were like seven, eight doctors in the room. They called other doctors. They were like, it was so crowded. And um, this is when I started to feel like it's really serious. The blood wouldn't stop. Uh, was uh, My vital signs were getting worse and worse. I remember my blood pressure. The last thing I remember was four, probably. So my feet were up. Uh, They were putting my head up and they all had the same statement. Just don't go, don't close your eyes. My doctor reminded me the second day when she came to see me, um, jumping forward, that when she was telling me don't go, I I was telling her I'm not going anywhere. (laughs) This is what she remembers. I didn't want to go anywhere um, except that apparently I was going somewhere. Uh, you know, when when you hear it and, you, and when you watch a movie and they say, let's just pray for her, that's what they said. So she sat next to me, my doctor, my gynae, and she started praying. And she started telling me, don't even close your eyes because if you close your eyes, you're not there anymore. I remember all this. And I remember something super dramatic, the ceiling, just like when you see it in... The movies—it was caving in. That's what it was. So when I was looking there, and they was—they were asking me, "How are you feeling? What's going on with you?" And I'm like, I couldn't know what to answer. Practically, I was dying. That's—that's—that's that's, that's the only thing. They were—they were crying. I mean, the the world around me, and uh, the the blood wouldn't stop, and there was nothing that they could do for me it became scary when they got the electric shock, because you know, they they got them ready, because they saw this happening. So that's, they were expecting me to die practically, and they were hoping that they could save me. How did I feel at that moment? That's what I remember most, because I don't remember much what happened after that. I remember when I woke up, but I don't remember the, the exact thing i remember that i had a mini conversation with life and i told life that i love her and i don't want to go and i'm cl- i'm clinging to that and i knew deep down that I'm not going anywhere I knew it, it's so weird and sounds so awkward but i knew I'm not gonna die that's all I knew except that i Medically, apparently I did, <laughs> but I was brought back with these electric shocks. And I woke up after that in a ward, another cold ward uh, with nurses around me. And they told me we're preparing you for blood transfusion because you lost so much blood. Now, the first question I asked the nurse, did that really happen? She said, yes, welcome back. I still remember that, so I came back to life, so she was welcoming me back. They were preparing the blood transfusion and it's a bit complicated, no one can give you blood and you, they test it and put it for you, no, they have to get it from uh, the uh, strict places, the blood, uh, I don't know, banks and all that. And there was another scary moment. You're having blog for people. You don't know who they are and what was so emotional to me. And then my husband appeared out of the blue. They told me he, uh, they were looking for him while all this was happening and they couldn't find him. Uh, and they found him finally, you know? he was sleeping in my room. Maybe he didn't do that intentionally. He just did not know. Uh, he went back and he was with me when i had the blood transfusion so yeah and i asked for clothes the first thing
0: wow <laughs> wow I, I i have the privilege of seeing you speaking here because we're on video and i can see just how moved and how emotional you are. So, first of all, thank you so much for sharing. I know how difficult it is for you. And Do you me-
1: see does that show?
0: <laughs> <laughs> it does. <laughs> okay, let, let me just go back a little. What fascinated me there is that you knew, you knew that you were not going to die. And you.
1: I knew? I just knew. That. Yeah. I know it like every time when there's something hard happening to me, I know that it's going to pass. And I know that I came back to life and that was going to happen. And it's going to happen every time. When I go surfing and my mom is concerned, I'm like, I'm not going to die. <laughs> I did once and that was enough.
0: <laughs> Invincible. <laughs> so... <laughs> what the the part i want to come back to you said i had a conversation with life what does that mean for you who was life
1: yeah i i wasn't sure if i say conversation with life or with universe or with the um with god or with uh, with this force that's keeping us here and allowing us to have this conversation. Whatever that big thing is, I was having this conversation with and I was like, I was really telling, I I, I prefer to refer to this as she, I was really telling her that I'm not gonna go. And I begged her even for a second chance on life. You know, we, we were we're used to having second chances on everything. You you mess up with your parent, they give you a second chance, you mess up with your partner, he or she gives you another chance, and so with your boss and so on and so forth. But having a second chance on life, meaning not starting a new life metaphorically, but having a second chance, like being allowed to stay there, that was so big. That, that, that was the main conversation. And ever since, by the way, I developed this habit of conversating with the universe, with God, with with nature around me. I do that all the time.
0: Okay. So going back to that time, was this, you you had a conversation. Was it one-sided from your point of view? Or did you receive something in return? Was it a feeling, something you saw, something you heard? Or was it your determination, just saying, give me another chance.
1: And that's a very, very good question. I was a bit disheartened because I did not see any sign. Usually before that, I, I when I pray for something, I manifest something or I work hard for something, I ask the universe to give me a sign. And there was a sign. There was zero sign. So it was like, but I kept on talking anyway. I mean, it wasn't loud. It was something internal. But, but no, there was nothing in return except that there was the action of me coming back. But okay. No.
0: <laughs> so you died. You had gone. You don't know anything about it. So at some point, they put the electric paddles onto your chest and boom, brought you back. And this is when the nurse said welcome back
1: yeah after i woke up i mean i i had something blue on my chest which is i don't have maybe a tiny fracture because they have to push or something but that was because i wouldn't have believed it otherwise if i didn't have this on me i would have thought that they're exaggerating or something And then the next thing that I remember was my doctor, she went home, and she showered and came back. And she told me that what happened yesterday is the worst thing that happened in my entire life, and in my entire career. And that was a nightmare. I wanted to come back to make sure that you're alive. Because when I called, they said she's okay. I wanted to know if that's real. And honestly, only years i'm not saying weeks or months years after that these things started to come back to me and started to land because immediately after everything happened as if nothing happened nothing my ma- my mom flew from lebanon and she came to help me with a child my my ex-husband was was around like trying to do what he can but no one even had this conversation with me no one You know and even after that when i tried to talk about it my husband he was like no but this did not happen and if he's gonna hear this he's gonna say she's inventing she's creating she's hallucinating this just did not happen i don't know if this this is gaslighting or he maybe did not know he did not witness it so for him it didn't happen i don't know what it is so i wasn't even allowed to to talk about it and i did not Jeff, maybe you're the you know, one of the very few people I talk about. I started having the courage to talk about it maybe last year. Only then, and I was like, and when I talk about it, I talk about it a lot now because oh my god, this happened. Even my daughter, when I when I tell her this, she kind of feels and uncomfortable, and she doesn't want me to talk about it. So it was like I, the worst thing is that was i was denied i didn't have the permission i did not have a safe place to talk about it and i had to act as if nothing happened while every bad thing happened after that i had to deal with me losing a job losing my money losing my health because i was obviously i I was when i was pregnant i was not okay and when i gave birth obviously i was very much not okay so it took me two years to be healthy just like i was before and uh, to keep with to de- to cope with all the changes that were happening to my body, to my life, and for God's sake, I mean, I died and I did not talk about it. So that that was that was that was so hard. This is when I thought I'm gonna try to embark on a journey that would help me heal, probably. And I started. Uh, Having those coaching courses, and I had a coach back then, and that saved me. It does. It did, actually, and still does.
0: I think when something happens like this, let's say traumatic for the sake of a, a better word. At some points we need to share, to unload, at the point when we're ready and when we're not allowed to share and people stop us from sharing or talking and they don't listen that probably does more damage than the original trauma
1: and, and that makes you that makes you even worse because it they does. think that, that that you're exaggerating i mean my my husband my husband catchword is always and still is uh exaggerating so did i am i exaggerating my saying for god's sake i was brought back to life i mean am i not allowed to say that i was not and uh, i kind of got used to not talking about it and i don't know how it happened last year i was in a conversation with uh with a friend and it came up and i was like do you believe that this happened to me and because it was it felt safe i i st- I had the courage to start talking about it and then it's you. And I think that's the safest I've, I've been, uh, put in to talk about it.
0: Yeah. Well, when we spoke a couple of weeks ago, uh, you started talking with me. I didn't ask you about it and you started talking. I allowed you to talk and you evidently felt safe in talking. So, um, so, I hope it's helping. What I will share with you is this. My daughter is a senior sister in heart and lung transplant. And you know, when you watch the movies and someone dies or they have a heart attack, and then the medic leans on their chest and they're pumping the chest doing CPR. In real life, it's nothing like that. It is so brutal. In real life, because they have to uh, put so much energy to reach to your heart, to stimulate your heart, your ribs get fractured. And that's why your ribs were fractured, and that's why you had the blue kinetic tape on your chest. It's only after that then they put the electrodes on there to stimulate the defibrillator. So it wasn't the defibrillator that fractured your ribs, it was the doctors doing CPR. It's brutal. So it's quite common for people to have fractured ribs. So whenever I see movies now and they're gently leaning on the chest trying to bring them back to life. Yeah. That's not it. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. But the other thing is, if they did do it properly, really, then you could kill someone because you could stimulate the uh, in- interrupt the natural beat of the heart so actors can't do that. Anyway, we're giving trade secrets away above the movies now.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a big secret. You know, what was actually brutal and ruthless is when I was seeing the knives because they were ready to cut me and cut the uterus. out. As if, I mean, the, people don't get that this is something very dear to any woman, the uterus. That's, that's something that's very instrumental in, in her being a woman and a mother. And all that. For so they were sure. saying it. They were saying it after me giving birth, you know, after me having a normal delivery, and they were having all those knives and preparing everything. And so yeah, it's it's the the it's actually. And I know they they're just trying to save people's life, and this is what they need to do, but it's actually so brutal and so cruel in a way when they want to do that so you could probably die out of fear (laughs) before dying from whatever happens to you but i understand that they have to do this
0: (laughs) yeah i mean you think about the old days having all of that done without anesthetic with an audience watching i mean surgery in its early pioneering days was incredibly brutal incredibly thankfully we're not there An anesthetic does work. So, you died. You had CPR.
1: You're helping me uh, land the idea by repeating that.
0: Yeah. Okay. You died. You had CPR. The doctors were pumping on your chest. The evidence is there. They then put the defibrillator on you, brought you back to life. You don't remember anything from here. You wake up next day. Now what? You're thankful? You're blessed? What's going through your mind? You've, you asked for a second chance, Rose. It was given to you. What were you thinking now?
1: I was thinking that a version, a certain version of Rose has definitely died, and she needed to die. It was the one that I would like to call the drama queen. I mean, every woman has a drama queen in her, but I think, I mean, I I had tough uh, conditions and all that, but I grew a lot into being a drama queen and that was affecting very much the quality of my life. So I think that drama queen has gone. So this is the the one that has died when actually I had my heart stopped or whatever happened. Uh, There's not only I was brought back to life, I think a new version of me came back to life, who is annoyingly happy and positive.
0: (laughs) Annoyingly happy and positive.
1: I, I know, you know, I, I annoy a lot of people and they tell me this. So th- there's a Pollyanna that came back. to life. <laughs> I, of course, I do have my moments and I do have moments where I'm sad. But you know, even when I'm crying, I would throw a pun. Not because, not because I have to do it. But this became a second nature of me. And so yes, life has given me a second chance by bringing me back to, to, to her to life but it with a new version, a very enhanced version.
0: Okay, is that a conscious decision? Do you think?
1: Of course it is. Of course. And I think there was a silent deal. And that one sided conversation that I had with life, that I'll bring you back to life provided you change that. So I've been trying to change you for the past many years, you always decided to feel stuck, to feel a victim, and to be a drama queen. And you did not want to take full charge of your life. And now, you know what, Um, I'm going to interfere. This is how it's going to be.
0: Okay. You know what's interesting here, Rose? I've had so many stories that are similar. I don't mean people have died, but I mean... Someone has gone through a real tough time in their life. They've come through it. And what they've done then is help other people where prior to the trauma that wasn't their their thing. So for you, your journey, you're a scientist, you're a data analyst, you're looking at buying behaviors and all this kind of stuff. You die. You're brought back to life. You're thankful. You said earlier you had a coach, a mentor, and that's what really helped you. That's what really saved you. And now look, guess what? You were a mentor to help others. Exactly. I wonder if this was part of the design of your life. Who knows? But I know you're an executive coach and I want to get behind the scenes here as to what that means. People need a coach for many different reasons, some for getting through extreme trauma like yourself, Um, others need help with ideas or business. Um, So let's see if we can help our listeners to become more successful in their lives So during my research of you, I noted that you talk a lot about company culture. And if people don't fit within the culture of the company, they struggle to thrive. Can you expand on that for me, please?
1: Yeah. Uh, It's not just inside the organization, by the way. Wherever you don't fit, you will just be like smothered. This is how it is. And it's your choice whether to stay or whether to leave. And this is where people get stuck. And you know, sometimes I tend to forget that I have to be a bit more patient because sometimes I'm like, you know what? And I, and I, and I give any client or any, any friend, even like I give them the permission, like if you, if you feel that I'm becoming a bit ruthless, please stop me. If this becomes too much then stop me. But guess what? I'm not going to be gentle and I'm not going to be kind. And my coach was not very kind to me when she had to shake me and show me how things are. So whether it's in your personal life or in an organization, the culture or the habitat where you are, if it's not the right for, one for you, then there's not going to be anything good coming out of it you're not going to be performing well and if you do it's going to be very limited it's going to be really very not sustainable and it's going to end and that would be on the expense of you uh suffering you know yesterday itself i put a post on ig and it was like i do what i love and actually this is not luck not coincidence it's just a decision and unless you are a tree you can move from wherever you are. You're not happy where you are in this culture. Of course, you're gonna be, you're gonna suffer there. Leave, then it's not gonna change there. No one can change the culture. You're not happy in this marriage, you're not stuck. I thought I was stuck for 10 years in my marriage. I was not stuck. It's a decision. Wherever you are, the culture of it, you're not stuck there. It's a it's a decision. What we don't know is that sometimes people when they're in the inside, they need someone to hold the torch for them and show them the way they will not take a decision on your behalf. I'm, I'm not even allowed to give an advice for anyone as a coach. But I'll just help them see things better. And once they do, and this is so empowering and they're off to go. This is exactly what happened to me. And this is, this is precisely why I like to be around women and help them see this thing and get out of the, where they are. Stuck is a word that is used by almost every person I know um, until they know that they're not stuck.
0: Okay. Now there was quite a bit in there about finding who you are. So I'm often asked, this is a question I get a lot, which is, Jeff, how do I find my purpose? And I get this so often. So Rose, you've been through a lot. You've had a varied career. Here's the thing now, especially with your experience. Do you think people have a purpose. That's the first question. The second question is, if you think that they do, have you found yours yet? So I'll...
1: the question. I think you're a coach by nature without knowing that, but yeah, you are. You know, one of the uh, best exercises kind of that we do as coaches is helping people to know their life purpose and when you ask them if they have a life purpose nine out of ten unless they are kind of serving for the community and they think probably that this is their life purpose and it could not be the one but they would be in an o when you ask them something like that it's something not only they don't know but they have never thought about it we are not uh, uh, raised in a way to believe that we have a life purpose. It's like we're stumbling in this life. It's like we're leaving it to randomness most of the time. That's exactly how it is. And even when you when you accept a job offer or you accept to marry this person, you, you're not aware if this serves your life purpose or it doesn't. I mean, I changed uh, from Lebanon to Dubai. I know that's the best thing that happened to me, but I, I didn't even, know that this is this was part of my life purpose without me calling it life purpose because that's how it started you know so first of all the first question no they don't have a life purpose and they don't know most of people that they should unless they are a coach or have been coached or some rare cases they happen to have one do i have a life purpose yes but the answer is this life purpose is never fixed. Here's the thing. Even when some client embark on a journey of coaching and at the very beginning we do the life purpose bit and even if it's an executive coaching, we do some life purpose and some career purpose and all this. I really tend to be very honest. This during our journey is going to change and it's still going to change your entire life. So yes, I do have one but is it, only the one that I found out 13 years ago, 14 years ago when I when this happened to me when I died, and I came back to life. No, it keeps on changing. Not every day, but it keeps on changing. But yeah, I do have one.
0: That brings me on to an interesting one. Because I was searching for my own purpose for quite a while. I then delivered on a purpose, not knowing or realizing it was my purpose. And that was when I wrote a book. Now here's the interesting thing. Once I'd written the book and it was finished, I no longer had a purpose. And I was left how can I best say this unfulfilled, lonely, empty and no purpose. Yeah. So, so when you say it changes, what advice would you give to someone who perhaps has found their purpose delivered on their purpose and then they're left purposeless Now, what do they do then?
1: If I am yeah, to take the example of your book, it wasn't actually the book that was the purpose. You felt that you you don't have a purpose because the book is successfully published. But there's a main reason why you wrote that book, not the topic, but it's why you wrote that book. That's your life purpose. So actually, I think when people feel that oh, their life purpose is changing, and it's gone. It's never gone. It's when you have to go one layer deeper and know what triggered the need to write a book. So pr- it could be something like you wrote the book because you want to want to help the a certain community do things better. So that's your life purpose rather than the book itself. I don't know if it's making sense so that's precisely why we do this exercise and we keep on doing it it's like every time we go one level deeper so at the first place for instance i thought that my life purpose is to help new moms you know but then when i helped i mean i hope i did but i think i did had <laughs> a certain number of n- new moms i kind of like okay, so I served my purpose, I can keep on doing that. But there was something that was deeper than that. Not only new moms, not only women, it could be anyone. So the, 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 the purpose kept, kept on becoming more and more solid. That makes sense.
0: It does. Well, if we take the example of myself and my book, what happened, I was uh, adrift for a couple of years after writing the book, and, and I kept asking, what is my purpose? What is my purpose? I no longer have a purpose, and I confided in some friends, and I said, I don't know what to do now. My life is empty. I've fulfilled. Now what? But what actually happened is similar to what you say, in that there are multiple layers, because then something else came along, which I could never possibly have done without first completing the book. So, I, yeah, I think we have multiple purposes. You call it layers. I can subscribe to layers. Uh, and I think we have multiple purposes. Not everyone is able to find their purpose in life. Um, I'm fortunate that I did. I have, and I'm on another road now, which I'll probably share in another podcast. But I think it's important that people think about their purpose, because we all have specific skills. I was talking to a guy yesterday in another podcast, Jonathan Green, and he's written 300 books. 300! Oh my God. <laughs> and, uh, and he writes a book in 24 hours. I said, Jonathan, how on earth is this? And you know what? He said, my superpower is writing fast. And I thought, you know, we all have a superpower. And what he he went on to explain how we did that. And uh, I wouldn't be able to do it, it's not within my powers, but I have superpowers elsewhere. And we all have. Yeah, we all have superpowers.
1: You just tap into these. Um, yeah. Superpower. This is why we need a coach, a mentor, a therapist, a friend, whoever is this person, to help you tap into these resources because these are resources. And you know what's one of the things that is very much overlooked and it would help you toward your life purpose or bring you back to that life purpose and make you have a better version of it, uh, is your values, you know? So your set of values and these are different from ethics. So what you really love in life, these will always, if you're if you're off your purpose, they will bring you back. They will remind you what you like and what you want to keep in your life.
0: I, th- I think we might need to come back and do another show about life's purpose. <laughs> That'll be doing. <too> <laughs> So I I want to move it on slightly now. Maybe we'll come back to that. But thinking about success, many people set goals, but lots of people give up. Let me say fail. So in your experience as a coach, why do you think this happens?
1: I think because people expect a lot, and I think mainly Actually, not I think, I believe that people have a distorted definition of success. And this is how we're programmed. This is our iOS, this is our Android, whatever phone you use. But This is is how we're programmed to believe that a successful woman is a woman who's married with three kids and still can run a business, but she needs to be with her kids and still succeed. So these are definitions. I'm just giving you one out of 100 definitions so when you have this and you achieve part of this or you do it totally differently you tend to think that you're not successful and you tend to think that you fail and they the the, the, uh, the relationship that you have with failure defines everything you do and if you don't fail it means you haven't tried enough so people have a distorted definition of success people are so scared to be labeled as they failed while it's a badge of honor actually because they really tried hard. So I, I remind myself when I'm windsurfing and I'm, and I'm scared to fall and then if I don't fall, it means I haven't tried enough. I haven't succeeded in this lesson, I have to fall. And this actually reminded me of the, the, the necessity of falling when one time i came back with many bruises and i told uh, the the instructor well i fell infinite times and he said you're meant to fall to succeed and that really resonated a lot with me so people think that they should fit certain criteria in order to be successful and they should not fall or fail and when they do they are really so hard on themselves So we need to change the narratives. We need to change the definition of success because it's really personal.
0: Okay, let's do do it right now then, Rose. What is your definition of success?
1: Okay, we need one definition to be preserved, at least for me as a single mom, to be able to have a life for me and for my kids. I know their dad is there, but I mean, for me as a single mom, I still have to preserve this successful definition that is in any book. So I need to have a decent form of life. This ticks with me. But honestly, success is me putting goals, the things that I like, and achieving them no matter what it is. So for me, um, I don't know, going on to another level of windsurfing is a success. For me, having a particular client on my coaching portfolio, because this client, I actually will end up learning from him probably as much as he will learn from me. Maybe sometimes I'm like, are they really paying me? I'm just learning more than what I think I'm delivering. This is a success. So for and in a nutshell, in order not to talk a lot about that, success is anything that I think and I believe is instrumental and important in my life. And I achieve it no matter what it is. It could be just putting the, uh, the lights in my garden right now. That's success if I do it.
0: I completely agree. Um, most people associate it with money. I did when I was a kid, as most kids do. So when I first started this journey, my question was, how does a millionaire become a millionaire? I found out the answer to that one, but then success is not always about money. And you're right, fear, uh, fear of many things prevents us from doing something. Uh, Yeah, that's a, a subject we might get onto in a while. But hey, you're listed as one of the top 30 women in Dubai as an unstoppable woman entrepreneur of 2022. I think I should say congratulations. <laughs> that fits <laughs> in with you, your kickboxing and, and being an athlete and you're windsurfing. You're a feisty girl. Here's my question, though. What does Rose do to stay focused on your goals? What do you do?
1: I do the things that I like and I think that I love. And, you know, apart from the things that I'm really condemned to do, I really have to do for some reasons, I don't do the thing that I don't like to do. And I, I remind myself every day, two things. The first one, I'll do, I'm going to choose between what I love and what I love most, because there's no third option. The second one, if there's something happens and comes my way, then I'm going to find a way to love it. I don't know what it is the other day my daughter was like you're really lucky because you love what you do and i'm like yes that it kept, me, it kept me thinking for some time and my answer was yes i worked hard to work in things that i love and i mean even when you when you get certified as a coach it's such a long journey to gain trust and to trust yourself to do it so, It took me a really long time while I still kept my media thing because I love it as well. But there are times when things came my way and I had to take them for for various reasons. One of them because, I mean, I need to have a life and I need bills to pay. So there were things that came my way that I at the first place I did not like and I did not love, but I formulated them in a way. I codified them in a way that I ended up actually loving them. And now I think, Jeff, I keep on saying I think, I I don't like the word I think. I believe that no matter what comes my way, two things. It's either out or it's in the mainstream of me loving what, what it is. So this is how I bring myself always to who I am and what I do. I do only things that I love. And I sit with people only that I enjoy sitting with. And I live with people that only I enjoy living with. Any other thing does not exist.
0: I subscribe to that completely. Uh, One of the 11 steps of success that I found is be careful of the people you surround yourself with. Be very careful. You, yeah, you
1: become them, Jeff, whether you like it or not. Even the things that you watch and even the things that you engage with, unconsciously, you will become them. So I am very much aware of that.
0: Yeah, I put a meme onto LinkedIn not so long ago. I said, if you want to be a millionaire, you need to mix with millionaires. That's if true. you if you want to catch COVID, you mix with people who have COVID. Yeah, exactly. it's ridiculous, right? But it, it's true. It's absolutely true. Your peer group, you become the average of the six closest people around you. That is for sure. So he, he, I've got another coach question for you here. And this this is what I... I loving. F- it. Keep it coming. So a lot of people in business struggle to say what they do. Have you found that? So, what advice can you give to help them to discover their brand strategy and to stand out from the competition?
1: You mean they they don't like to say what they do as a, as a profession?
0: No, it's not that they don't like to say; it's they have difficulty saying what they do with clarity. Have you? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, oh, what do you do? Oh, uh, 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 and. They might give a job title, but it doesn't oh say what they do, right?
1: Oh, my God. I've, I've written actually a full article about that because this is how it is. Two things. You ask them what they do in life, and they would give you their, uh, their, their designation. And when they as they say it, you see that it's not resonating with them. So look at me. If you ask me what you do, I'm, well, I'm, I'm an executive coach or I'm an executive coach. That's, that's big of difference. When you, they, they would tell you what they, what they do just as they are told to, uh, to, to say it, you know? So for years, when people asked me, for instance, what do you do? I did not cling to my title, but rather to what I believe I am. So I used to say, I'm an analyst, I'm a researcher, I'm a, I'm a data scientist, you know? The, the other thing, so what, what was the part, the second part so that I make sure that I got it right?
0: Uh, Well, what what advice can you give to people to help them get clarity to say what they do?
1: Owning it, you know, and that's something that when someone hires you or gets you on board of any project or an organization, they don't do the right induction. And this is part of the thing that I like to do as a coach. You have to own it, you know. Even any role that you get in life, when you become a mom, you don't. You're not. Nobody helps you to own it. When 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 you when you're promoted to a CEO, some people have all the doubts. They feel they, they You know what's very common, Jeff? They have these. I, I mean, I'm very lucky and humble to be really working with executives and C level and. It's not that I'm not interested in working with them. I would love to get insights from any person, but I'm saying that it just happened that I do work closely with them and they they have something in common. They feel like imposters. It's because they do not own who they are and it's because they're clinging a lot to the title. And you know what happens once this title goes away? They feel that they're nothing. I mean, but what happened to you being a chairman for the past 25 years? The title is gone, but you're still who you are. So, yeah, this is very much, actually, you brought a subject which is actually so much overlooked, and I really, really wanted to express myself, so I wrote this article about it, and it's your relationship with your title, with what you do, and with owning it and becoming the, the brand and the persona. So the brand is not the company you're working for. It's you. That's your IP address. It's, it's, it's as, as simple as that.
0: I'm going to add to your purpose, Rose. You need to write a book. You, you, you write so many articles on LinkedIn. And they're, they're so useful. You could put them together and write a book. So... That that I'm I'm going to drop that on you right there. You need to write a book. No, I want you to write a book, and I'm even going to help you to do it too.
1: I mean, I, I, I'm I'm going to be honored if you help me because sure, I'll help you. I'm an expert in that.
0: Yeah, I'll be and, I'll be no, your mentor. You know, I,
1: and it, even English is not English is my third language. So sure,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so when you have a new project. Or you're working through a current one and you recognize that maybe you're running out of steam, but the project is still worthy. What do you do to get inspired?
1: I take a break, first of all. Even if, even, even if I'm really overwhelmed and even if I just every minute matters, I take a break, step back. And when you step back, you 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 come back in full power. So that's what I do. And sometimes, but that's really rare because at the first place, I wouldn't have decided to hop on this journey if it didn't resonate with me. But if it's really not for some reason, I would I would drop it. Even if this is labeled as a failure, I I don't care about failure. I mean, I I love to have a collection of these failures because. They, they are lessons, actually. Imagine you're having a lesson for free, not for free, the, the the, tough way, but it's you who experienced that. So that's one possibility. Or I really come back and I change the perspective and I change the narrative that's going on. You know, our mind is wired always to, uh, to search for the negative things. So the other day, a metaphor came to my mind what is the fastest the fastest sprinter in the universe it's your mind looking for something that isn't good that isn't going well so their the mind will tell you that you don't have enough time to do it or you're not capable of doing it or maybe you should be spending more time with the people you love instead of doing that i changed this narrative and i let my heart take over by the way when i say to all to everyone i know it's actually my heart that takes over all the time, but my heart is a smart one, by the way. (laughs) So so when I let my heart lead, everything changes and everything falls in place. And I remind myself all the time, all the time, I have to enjoy what I'm doing. I had, um, I had a video call with my son very early this morning it was his night time and he was telling me that he's working hard and studying hard and I told him do not do not forget to do this joyfully. do not forget to enjoy what you're doing and to take small breaks even if it's a hot chocolate that you're drinking in the snow outside on your terrace just go ahead and do it
0: in the snow (laughs)
1: Yeah, because because, because,
0: says you from Dubai. Yeah, I
1: mean, it it said the child who uh, who was born in Dubai and (laughs) and now he is living in the snow.
0: (laughs) Okay, I've got a deep question for you. Now we've reached the end. Uh, I I will come back for sure in the future, but for now, I ask this question to all of my guests. Are you ready?
1: Okay, you raised my adrenaline level. Go.
0: (laughs) Ready is my eternal level. I've not heard that one before. I like it. It's usually, hey, I was born ready. Okay, here's the question, Rose. What's the most important thing you've ever learned?
1: Being happy and in the moment.
0: Okay, I will take that as your answer. Actually, how we get happy and and achieve that is a subject for another day. But right now, Rose Hindi, you have been truly amazing. Thank you so much for your time today. You've been wonderful. Well, that's it. We've come to the end of the show for today. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Success. I hope the show has helped you to ignite your passion to be a catalyst for action and giving you the fuel you need to realize your own dreams. If you've enjoyed the show, please hit the follow button, leave a review and share it. You know, it really does make a huge difference. And without your help, we can't succeed. So what I'd like you to do is hit the like button and then share this episode with just one friend. You might make a huge difference to someone's life so share the episode with just one person a friend, a family and see what difference we can make on another note I'm always looking for great success stories and if you'd like to be a guest on the show or you'd like to nominate a guest please contact me on our website at jeff-smith.com you know I really really would love to hear from you that's all from me today thank you again for listening and have a great day